This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. wouldn't be the kind of music you'd hear today in the Big Easy. But welcome to our program here at WFAN. You'll understand in a couple of moments exactly why I referred to the Big Easy. We're at that point of the month, folks. We have our guests joining us both hours of our program this morning from IGEA Brain and Spine. The dynamic duo of doctors are with us again, and this time it's a little interesting setup. Appropriately enough, as we move to daylight saving time, and yes, we're at about six minutes after six o'clock. Those clocks went ahead overnight. Hopefully you didn't lose too much in terms of sleep. Good morning, I'm Bob Solter. In studio with us, Dr. Adam Lipson, and joining us by phone on our program. Now, here's an interesting twist for an IGEA brain and spine discussion. Dr. Arun Rajaran is joining us from the Big Easy. Well, good morning to you. Nice Extra day. early good morning, Bob and Adam, from the Big Easy. <laughs> I'm, 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 we're not sure what time zone we're on, but either way, we feel good down in the Big Easy is the bottom line. You know, I was just reading about this whole thing with the time zone. This is it's it's crazy all the different changes with time and talk about changing time and all all over the country. Why don't we just in fact, have Florida's trying to uh, apparently put in legislation now to keep daylight savings time the whole year. Apparently yeah. they're trying to fight it uh, as we speak. This is it it it's crazy just trying to keep up with all this, but we appreciate you joining us. Hopefully you're having a nice time as well while you are in um, the New Orleans area. Now, we've had a couple of discussions on this program that have been doozies with uh, both of you with us talking about uh, some of the work of IGEA Brain and Spine. We're going to get into a couple of interesting areas of discussion, including one thing that the three of us talked about, um, but we didn't have time to start a discussion on uh, in the last show. But I think it's an important discussion and in a way kind of a timely uh, discussion, too. A little bit of background first. Who wants to tackle this on IGEA Brain and Spine, just in case there's somebody listening to us who's not familiar with exactly what IGEA Brain and Spine is all about? Good morning. Well, good morning. So I'll start. This is uh, Adam Lipson, and I'm one of the neurosurgeons with IGEA Brain and Spine. Uh, Arun is one of our orthopedic surgeons. So to give a background, we're a multi-specialty group. We are in Manhattan. We have six offices in New Jersey, and we really focus on the entire spectrum of the neuromusculoskeletal axis. So we have neurosurgery, 
neurology, orthopedic surgery, soon to be neuropsychology as well, all within the practice. And Arun, when we talk about um, the area and specialty of um, orthopedic surgery work in this day and age, it really covers just about everything, doesn't it? Or can cover just about everything. Absolutely. So from head to toe. So my specialty within orthopedics is orthopedic sports medicine. And uh, most of the time, our, you know, our athletes certainly uh, can hurt everything from head to toe, but a lot of orthopedic sports medicine focuses on uh, the common injuries, uh, including the knee and shoulder, um, you know, such as the meniscus and the uh, ACLs in the knee, and then you got your rotator cuffs and um, the labrums and the biceps and things in the shoulder. So uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of what we see uh, involves those two joints, but uh, sports medicine orthopedic surgery is, uh, is what I do, and uh, I'm trying to help all of us uh, get back to, back to our activities and back to our lives uh, as quickly and safely as possible. You know, especially Adam and I were talking when we were, were walking into WFAN this morning, too. You know, this change of time and everybody's anticipating the whole change to spring after the brutal weather we've been through in the past couple of weeks. It's like it can't happen fast enough, quite frankly. Right, absolutely. And a lot of the weekend athletes who are listening to discussions like the ones we're having today are yearning for the ability to get out and take part in those activities that are spring-related uh, too. What kind of precautions are necessary to try to avoid some of those typical injuries that you see? Sure. Well, a lot of it starts with just slowly easing back into some of these activities. So think about uh, your car that uh, you may have stored for the winter or something that you basically didn't use all winter long and the first time you're going to fire that engine up or the first time you're going to get back uh, out there to, to go for a run or, uh, you know, to want to go play some basketball outside at, at a local uh, park uh, by your house. So these are all things that, you know, you got to gradually ease back into. So whenever you talk about, all right, you know, how do you try and prevent an injury when you're getting back into things that you haven't done in a while, starting with the basics, starting with stretching. You know, that's one of the biggest things that uh, – uh, we see when you first get back to um, your activity level again, things are just tighter and things don't have the endurance. That's why we're coming up right now, obviously, on uh, you know baseball uh, starting to get busier and busier with uh, spring training and everything. And, and that's where you'll start to see more and more of those uh, initial tendonitis-type symptoms. So these are basically uh, issues where you get inflammation of different tendons, uh, most commonly, obviously, in baseball around the shoulder, around the elbow. Because a lot of these, uh, even though people have been doing uh, off-season training um, and conditioning, it's always different when you're in more um, game and obviously practice uh, scenarios where you're going to be pushing things a little bit harder and more frequently. Um, so little bit, little basics on you know stretching and warming up, and if you are going to you know participate in activities for a certain period of time maybe your first day out you're not going to be doing it for the full day like you were anticipating um so kind of literally like you'd warm up your car engine you got to warm up uh warm up your body before you start really getting into full go mode uh, as we start up in the spring yeah i would i would add and you know one of the interesting things when we look as so as a physician so much of what we do is compartmentalized, and, and the reality is I see many neck and back injuries. Uh, about 80% of the surgery I do is in the spine, 
And yet I ended up referring probably five or seven hip, undiagnosed hip, knee, or shoulder issues out, which is part of why we brought Arun in to provide that aspect of care to our patients. But that's the reality is everything's connected. And, and certainly the mind is connected to everything. And so, and so that's really been the focus of our practice in t- terms of providing medicine to treat the mind and the entire body and not just send people off to different directions. And I think along with that is the training aspect. You know, we, in talking to my physical therapists, a lot of times, and, and, and really applying to the weekend warrior, it really is yeah. focus on motion first, mm. then strength, then your conditioning and endurance. And, and that's really a, a priority that, you know, many people say, well, you know, I'm running half hour, an hour a day to try to get in shape for this sport. That's really not the best directed training. That is going to set you up for injury. And it's one of the things that we, we even though we're surgeons and we deal with the end result of the most advanced injury that requires surgery, there are many steps that contribute to that. And, and I think training in terms of prevention and in terms of rehabilitation are really something that we're engaging in more and more with our patients. Yeah, and Adam, Adam, you bring up a great point because the the amount of things that you probably could head off in the past if you got the right advice and direction early on makes a big difference. I mean, the Adam and I see patients all the time that come in to see us months into some of their symptoms and and or sometimes, you know, let's just say even weeks, but weeks to months into the symptoms that they were, you know, they were Googling or they were talking to a friend of a friend or they may have spoken to someone that kind of had gave them some advice on what actually was going on and the, this is what they got to do to get better. And then ne- they didn't get better. And that's the other thing that I would say, and I don't, I don't think this is an, uh, an exaggeration because I frequently talk to my colleagues about this as well. And that's why, um, that's why I'm in New Orleans right now, just to give people a background. So the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons has their annual meeting every year. So basically we all you know, meet and we lecture and we uh, go over research to basically the, look at all the updates and, and the latest and greatest in orthopedic surgery around the world. And we were having these discussions even just yesterday that in sports medicine especially, I would say 90-plus percent of the people that walk in my door will not end up needing surgery. I'm going to get them. There's a pretty much 90% of those people, I'm going to get them better without surgery. There's a lot of other things we do nowadays. You know, we do platelet-rich plasma treatments in the office on a daily basis. That's where you use your own platelets uh, um, in your, from your blood to basically concentrate them and inject them back to the site of injury to help things heal. These are things that professional athletes have had at their fingertips for, for years. And now, I mean, we do this. We do this in our office. We, you know, I'm back, um, flying back home, and we have uh, two of these treatments set up for Monday um, tomorrow. So this is commonplace now. So part of my job I've seen recently is just reassuring people and, and getting, getting public education out there to folks that you don't need to be scared to come see an orthopedic surgeon or a neurosurgeon because your shoulder hurts, your knee hurts, or your back hurts. Because just because you come see us, doesn't mean you're going to get a surgery. And like I said, 90% of the folks that walk in our door are not going to need a surgery. But if they actually come in first when their shoulder starts to bother them or the knee starts to bother them, I'm going to actually be able to tell you what the problem is and what you can do to get it better much, much faster than if you probably just tried to figure out or Google things and and talk to a lot of different people. So I feel like um, part of the education that Adam and I are trying to provide for folks is that ability for people to come see us to get the right information, to really get the right treatment, to get them back to doing what they want to do as safely and effectively as possible. How much of a 
I'll ask the question, either help or hindrance, is it, you know, that people have the internet at their fingertips? You know, you mentioned Googling and, you know, there's people talk, even refer to consulting Dr. Google, Google, literally. Um, right. Uh, I can start. So it's interesting. I see the range of reactions because uh, I think for Aru and I, we both trained at as the information age really starting getting adopted. I mean, I started, I graduated medical school in 2000. So for 18 years, I've been dealing with how you educate patients. And obviously the access to information has evolved tremendously mm -hmm. during that time. As has, frankly, the pro pace of progress. You know, the amount of medical information and medical studies doubles, I think, every six or seven years. Uh, and that's been the trend for the last 25 years. So we're seeing this explosion of information for us as experts to discern, let alone for the lay population. And, and what I tell people at the end of the day as an expert is, I have 20,000 hours, I've operated on 4,000 patients in 18 years of doing this six days a week. And there's no, there's there's definitely no way that a patient can access that experience. But I do think at the end of the day, when you're dealing with these types of decisions, especially when you're being you know, when you're considering going into a brain or spine or orthopedic surgery, they're big deal interventions mm -hmm. in someone's life. And they want to have information. They want to feel informed. And our job these days really is to help better inform our patients. So many times I'll use Google as a tool. I may write down someone's diagnosis. I may write down these are the options and these is, this is why I think I recommend. This is where my head is and where I think you're going and what I, I think you're going to end up dealing with. But go ahead Use that information. Go ahead, Google away, spend your time with the decision-making, and come back and we'll talk, and here's my email address. That's definitely a more modern approach than when I was training. You know, Many doctors say, don't bother Google. It just It's just going to confuse you. You're not going to understand decision-making. Well, if, if you're entrusting a physician to work with you as a patient and asking someone to put a knife on your body, you better feel comfortable with that. And I think that at the end of the day, information arms people. It can cloud decision-making. It can get a little confusing when someone just, you know, gets into what I call kind of a decision paralysis. Mm -hmm. They get so many ideas in the internet. Right. They go to forums and they hear from, and usually the most vocal patients are the ones where things are not successes. And some, some will say, well, I consulted Google. I went to this forum and two patients said they had a disaster with the surgery. Then you find out, okay, let me look at what those patients had, and they had surgery that was completely separate from what I had recommended. Um, yes, that's going to arm people's fears and anxieties, but our responsibility is to just inform people past that and make them feel comfortable with decision-making. So it's, it is shared, but obviously you have to have expert guidance and, and reassure someone. And I usually just talk about really much risk analysis. What's the risk of doing something versus the risk of doing nothing? And how's that going to affect your function? Arun, your thoughts on that? Actually, Arun, what uh, we're going to do is... I can add after the break if you want. Yep. We're going to come back to you on, on that. We're talking with Dr. Adam Lipson and uh, Dr. Arun Rajaram from uh, IGEA Brain and Spine. They are with us on our program for both hours of our show this morning. We've really just begun our discussion. Of course, during the course of our time with them, you want to join in um, with a comment, a question, um, we've done those before in times that they've been here. 877-337-6666. There's a couple of areas where we're going to go specifically that will be kind of new to the um, discussions that we have had with them. And that's all coming up this Sunday morning.
Yes, it's Selection Sunday, as a matter of fact. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter. We are talking with the doctors from IGEA Brain and Spine. In studio with us, Adam Lipson. And on the phone is Dr. Arun Rajaran. He is uh, joining us uh, from New Orleans. And we're going to turn our attention to you, Arun, to respond to this idea of what the impact is, whether you consider it a help or a hindrance at times, all the consulting that people do with Dr. Google. Absolutely. No, and Adam made uh, some awesome points uh, right before our break because our, uh, you know, our, I guess, let's say, generation of medicine, ever since our days of training, uh, we've been around the uh, technological boom from that standpoint. So I think, I, I would say overall, I, I do believe it's helpful um, because I think in this day and age, what, everything we do is what we call shared decision making. So when you come in to see me and we talk about what your issue is, you know, be it your shoulder, your knee, your, your back, whatever, whatever you're dealing with, you know, I want you to be able to have the most information possible to make the best decision possible for, for your body and for your care. So when most of the, most of the times nowadays, and you, you translate that into also additional imaging tests such as MRIs and things like that, which, you know, 20 years ago were not as common. Now they're incredibly common. So, Almost every one of our patients, they walk in the door to see us with basically an MRI report and CD in their hands and uh, their Google diagnosis and all the information that they looked up on their own. So a lot of our job these days is um, filtering that and basically trying to translate that for, for, the, for the folks to help them understand. But, you know, I, I, uh, I do think it's helpful because what happens is usually people will look up these, these uh, things online and come into the office at least with some information. And so when I use, you know, part of the words and when we start having discussions, they've, they've heard some of these terms before. So at least uh, um, having the access to information out there online and, and things like that does give people some general awareness. In fact, this is one of the lectures we were talking about yesterday in the, in the stem cell section of uh, our meeting yesterday. If you, if you put in uh, the word PRP, which uh, which is platelet-rich plasma, what we do in the office, there's some 20 million um, hits right now on Google for dedicated sites just on PRP. So most of the patients that come in to see me, they've already researched it and have looked it up, and, and they, they're asking me questions based on what their research is. And, you know, a lot, that's why we our job as experts is to help you actually make sense of the information and and more so you know help you clarify the let's say the correct information or what you what you actually need to know from from the standpoint of your own care so i i think overall it, it's a good thing um and then the other thing is you know we also direct patients actually to try and look for sources that we also feel are reliable so our our academy um they do a they do a great job kind of setting up patient uh specific websites and, um, you know, videos and, and things like that, that, that if they go to those websites and they Google and they get to those sites, you know, you know that you're getting it from a reliable source because it has the stamp of our academy on it. Um, and, and that's why we, we put those kind of things out there so patients can access it. So at least they feel like, okay, you know, they're getting the information from a reliable source. Um, and I think, you know, that's, my, it's, you know, knowledge is power, you know, information is power, and, and that's technology is power from that standpoint. And like Adam said, the, 
the leaps and bounds of advancements have uh, helped carry that through. Another thing we're looking at now is, even yesterday we were talking about this, is there's technology coming out where, like we do uh, what's called arthroscopy, where you do these procedures when um, you put the camera inside the knee and shoulder uh, to perform procedures. Normally that's only done um, in a operating room or a procedure room, um, but they're coming out with technology where there's the, essentially the size of a needle. So basically like you would, like you were getting a, like if you were getting a flu shot or a tetanus shot, that the, the basically tiny size of a needle, they're coming out with a camera. So it's like a nano camera technology that you could use that tiny needle and actually put it into the knee or the shoulder right in the office and, and give the patient diagnostic information literally right, right there while you're sitting with us in the office. So technology is, you know, obviously traveling at the speed of light. And, um, you know, that's, uh, I think it's, I think it's good for all of us. We just have to, you know, uh, understand where to look and understand how to uh, translate the information and, um, you know, get the right uh, information out there. Attending a conference like the one that you're attending in New Orleans, is that part of the way that you try to also keep up to date with all these advancements? 100%, 100%. So, you know, the, the formal term of these kind of things that we all go to is called continuing medical education mm-hmm. or CM, CME. Um, and uh, every field has that. You know, my wife's a teacher and, you know, the teachers have, uh, you know, they're continuing it that they do. And, uh, you know, every, every field has their own version of the same thing. And um, that's something that we all take a lot of pride in. And, um, you know, you'll, it's, it turns in, it also turns into end up being kind of a reunion time because these are all folks that we've gone to medical school with, residency with, and fellowship with. And every year we're trying to learn more and more and keep up to date on things. So um, that's exactly right. So they, and they, they focus a lot too on, you know, what's going to help, uh, help us better care for our patients. So yesterday was what we call specialty day, where uh, your type uh, of orthopedic surgery, which you focus on, dedicated seminars and lectures just for that. So I was in the sports medicine, you know, seminar all day yesterday. Um, and uh, we're basically discussing the latest uh, advancements in research and, and care for patients uh, from all over the world. And you know, obviously it's, it's our American Academy, so it's focused on uh, everything that we do. But, but there's, um, there's surgeons from all over the world here giving, you know, giving lectures and asking questions and being involved. And uh, that's how we keep up uh, with, uh, you know, the latest, latest and greatest in, uh, in medicine and what's available in our field. Absolutely. Are there different approaches taken in other parts of the world in terms of uh, approaching sports medicine? There certainly is. And, and I remember we had chatted about this, uh, I think, in January on our show, where some, some things in Europe, for example, um, and Asia, and as well as South America, because those are some of the things we were talking about yesterday, they don't have... At, for good or for bad, they don't have as many regulations as we do from the FDA standpoint. And, and listen, the FDA is here to protect us, so I'm, I'm, not, I don't, I'm not saying it's a bad thing at all. But we have more regulations that um, our treatments or medications or technologies have to go to before they can be approved for use in our patients. So, for example, there are some technologies um, in the shoulder, for example, for very, very large rotator cuff repairs that either have uh, have not healed from prior surgeries or by the time they come in, they're so big that you can't even fix them anymore. There's a new technology um, where you can basically create a new capsule around the shoulder. We call it superior capsule reconstruction. And, and that technology was first released in Europe. And they've They've been um, they've had a good decade now, at least of uh, of trials uh, with this, and even in Asia and Japan, there's a surgeon out there that has been doing doing this uh, procedure for just about the same time over a decade, 
and um, we're seeing good results. And that helped it roll out into use here over the past couple of years that it's now catching on. But but that's the cool thing that um, you get to see when you come to these kind of conferences and talk to people from around the world, because there are other places in the world that are that can try things before we can. Um, and and it and they it's obviously a learning curve. So they they under, they start to see things that um, could use improvement in the technologies, and you know they tell us those kind of things, and then you know we give them feedback once we uh, as what we've seen as far as what our use of these technologies. Um, so that's one thing I would say. Other. There are other parts of the world that can potentially use certain treatments before we can, um, and uh, it gives us an ability to kind of look to see, okay, what are the best techniques that we would want to adapt in our country for our patients, um, and then, you know, or vice versa, if they have started doing certain things, they'll actually ask us questions about things that we haven't necessarily done yet, but it falls into the realm of the other things that we already are doing, so we can kind of give them advice on what we think would work if they try certain things. Um, so that's the cool thing about uh, being around surgeons from all over all over the world. Hmm. Very interesting. One thing that we had touched upon um, in discussion off air last time you guys were here in uh, February is an area where I want to start to shift our focus, and we'll probably do this in a couple of um, segments of the program. Talk a little bit about um, the veterans and some of the issues we hear that they face. One of the things that is very common is post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. All right, um, what are we learning about about that, Adam? Well, several thoughts. First, you know, I just want to mention I'm a neurosurgeon, so I don't right. specialize in PTSD. But that said, I. This came out of discussion the last time we were talking about how really sports, particularly football and the military, have provided we, – we've learned a lot that has really advanced our understanding of concussion, mm-hmm. post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, some of the issues with chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And there's a variety of things, unfortunately, we're learning for better and for worse about – the long-term effects of some of these issues, but that there has been, due to the publicity surrounding this, a lot of research, uh, a lot more awareness, and and a lot, a lot more active work being done in these fields to try to understand them, get our hands around them, advance them. As I mentioned last time, there, there, were, I remembered this maybe three years ago, American Association of Neurosurgeons meeting, similar to where Rune's going to for AAOS. They had an entire three-day course that I ended up participating in on concussion. And, mm-hmm. and a lot of it were leaders from the NFL, physicians who were associated with that, as well as military, including in general. And one of the things that you know we talked about in the context of, of sports was how we navigate this issue of concussions and football has a lot greater relevance to concussions overall in many sports. And likewise, when we look at the military, we're, we're dealing with issues of, in ways we're dealing with many more concussions because we have better body armor, we have better ways of protecting our soldiers, but they're still dealing with the long-term consequences of blast effects, for example. We can have you know, bulletproof vests, bulletproof vehicles, better helmets, and you can protect yourself against blasts, which 
say in the Vietnam War would have ended your life, but there's still some long-term issues in terms of those blast injuries. One of the psychological aspects of this is the post-traumatic stress disorder. And that link with concussion is still really undetermined. Um, that's, that's quite, you know, as I said, I don't, I don't treat PTSD mm-hmm. patients routinely as part of my, uh, as part of my field. And yet it comes up routinely in the discussion with concussions. And I do have many colleagues who are military surgeons that we end up having a lot of conversations surrounding this. So, because, uh, yes. oh, sorry, no, go ahead, Arun. Well, uh, what I was thinking, Adam, is PTSD, and, and just like Adam said, you know, I'm, I'm an orthopedic surgeon, so I'm not an, ex- I'm an expert on uh, PTSD either. However, it's, uh, and we, and our, our practice is growing with, you know, going to be planning on growing with the neuropsychologist, um, partly for this, uh, this avenue. It's a, a large, predominantly psychological um, scenario where that, what it stands for, post-traumatic stress, because of that injury and because of that event, it has, it's, that was such a significant moment in that individual's life that, you know, was, uh, was, was potentially life-threatening or limb-threatening, um, makes a, a lasting impact on that individual. And, and it's a form of stress that can impact their daily life. And, and in, a, in a less uh, severe uh, analogy or a less uh, severe example that we see frequently is the reason why we have sports psychologists on all NFL teams and a lot of uh, colleges and professional teams as well, that after an athlete has a significant injury that uh, led to a surgery or led to an extended time out from their sport or activity, it's, it's not a blink of an eye. It's not kind of a snap your fingers, I'm healed, I'm back to playing normally again. Right. We, did sur- we did surveys on, um, on the NFL players that had come back after ACL surgery in their knee, and, and survey after survey showed that they did not feel normal that whole first season back. It took two years before, in their mind, they weren't scared about their knee anymore. They actually felt psychologically confident about their knee again. It wasn't until that second season back that that happened. So, again, that by no means is that um, post-traumatic stress from any sort of military example, but it's, it's on that spectrum of the impact that an event or an injury or something that takes away your ability uh, to do what you do so well um, and live your life has a lasting impact, and that's why it's so important that we work with our um, you know psychology colleagues uh, throughout the different fields to help um, best uh, treat our folks and give us the support they need to help um, you know cope and get stronger and improve over time. Okay, we're going to take a pause in our discussion. We'll get back to talking about this and more with our guests from IGEA Brain and Spine this Sunday morning. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Solter. It is Selection Sunday, and this is the day where those clocks went ahead an hour. So we're looking in this eastern time of the country at about 6.44 this Sunday morning. Hopefully you are up to date uh, time-wise. Uh, we are in an interesting discussion with our guests from IGEA Brain and Spine. Joining us by phone is Dr. Arun Rajaran. 
He is an orthopedic surgeon, board certified, and Dr. Adam Lipson, who is a board certified neurosurgeon, is in studio with us. Um, we've covered a couple of different areas thus far in our discussion. We're talking a little bit about this. We started talking about um, PTSD. I kind of introduced this in um, starting to talk about our veterans, things we were learning from uh, the military. Um, you want to join us in our discussion at any point, you can as well. 877-337-6666 is our number here at The Fan. Adam, one of the things you said to me off air uh, as we ended the last segment is that you used an interesting phrase. You said there are a lot of things about neuroanatomy um, that I guess help to point out, you know, for somebody who's dealing with um, issues surrounding PTSD that it's not something that's quote unquote just in their head. Right. So one of the fascinating things as a neurosurgeon is we're constantly making real world decisions based off an evolving body literature and basic science work on the brain. Mm -hmm. And many of that information is recent and developing. I think particularly with MRIs, functional MRI that can actually look at blood flow patterns in the brain when you're doing things and processing information and finally, a lot of the functional and genetic studies that we have available to us, we're constantly learning more and more about these diseases. So one of the fascinating parts of, for example, post-traumatic stress disorder is there is a lot of data that's fairly recent coming out of the military that shows that, yes, it's not purely quote-unquote psychological, that we see structural changes in the brain. Um, one of the aspects that is clear is that there's an altered response to stress and to what we call cortisol or glucocorticoids that patients with PTSD have a much higher responsiveness in their glucocorticoid receptors. So when they experience a surge of cortisol, they go much more quickly into fight or flight. It takes less cortisol to put them there. So there are situations that might induce a little bit of stress in us day to day that for that individual, it becomes life and death in their individual perception. So it, it, that's become very interesting. Look at the neuroendocrine response. Secondarily, we also see changes in the prefrontal cortex, which looks at emotional processing, as well as in the amygdala, which actually processes memory in the hippocampus off the temporal lobe. And some of the more interesting studies look at, for example, Vietnam War veterans, uh, those who develop PTSD, which is about 15%, or mm. the best study looking at about 830,000 Vietnam War vets, there's about 15% of males, 7% of females developed PTSD in their lifetime. But for those individuals, the functional MRI studies actually show that the amygdala in hippocampus has about a third smaller volume. It's hard to process just what the volume of a substance, the, of a location in the brain is, but clearly that's involved with emotional processing. And clearly there, that there is some aspect of the emotional limbic circuitry that's involved with PTSD in addition to our hormonal axis. So we're learning more. There are many strategies to relieve this. Uh, interestingly, the medications that hasn't, hasn't been so effective, even though a lot of people do take or are given medications for this, the best strategies tend to be more... Uh, cognitive behavioral strategy. So there's a whole spectrum of that. Yet, you know, one of the more interesting developments has been uh, looking at kind of 
putting people into small exposures and getting them adjusted to the real world. So say being in a crowd in, you know, a busy New York city subway, for example, mm-hmm. it's, inc- it's stressful for any of us, but you add those inputs into someone who already has enhanced stress response and that's incredibly difficult for them. So maybe giving them small exposures, you know, walking into a crowded room, then walking out, going back and, and giving them progressive exposures, kind of retraining the brain to not process this with a life or death situation. Those have been some of the interesting neuropsychological uh, strategies, but it, it's not, my point being, it, it really isn't in your head. There is anatomy behind this. We don't have all the tools. And, and this is very analogous to what we see with the concussion discussion mm-hmm. and chronic traumatic encephalopathy, that there is no straightforward test. You know, the, the only way we figure out if people have CTE is an autopsy. And unfortunately, there have been athletes who have committed suicide and had autopsies. There was a hockey player uh, who did that and was found just to have depression, not to have CTE. But our, our ability to diagnose this is, is we're not there scientifically, but we're dealing with a real world issue and we have to catch up. Mm-hmm. And we have to use the tools that are available to us as best as possible. And when we think about the way in which you know, the advances have taken place that have even gotten us to this level to be able to have this kind of discussion and understanding. You know, you think of the future and where potentially this can go and also the impacts that this can have throughout our society. You know, it's because we we learn things, as you've said to us, from the experience with the military and the NFL well, these are things that can be applied to a whole lot of people who will never be in either one of those situations absolutely um, in their lifetimes to, too so it's part of the fascination that we see with medicine and where things can go when we look at um the idea of to go back to something we touched upon at the very beginning of our discussion today uh, talking about trying to get prepared for those times when people will be outside more Preparation. You know, Arun, you used the term um, stretching, um, training. And as you were saying that, I'm thinking not just of the weekend athletes, but I'm thinking of people who will um, take on this idea that they're going to go out and run five miles, not having done anything like that for months or in some cases years. Uh, Obviously not a good idea. Stretching sounds like such a simple idea, but to do it effectively and in terms of the real benefits that it can have, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. And then Bob, one thing I... I just didn't want to um, not uh, mention it later if we get on to, on to other topics uh, in the, later in the show, going back to the military for a minute. Sure. Um, there's, there's been so many advances uh, in medicine throughout different fields uh, with our relationship working with the military. So this, we spoke about this off-air last time, so I just wanted to mention to our, our listeners as well. For example, 
a lot of the things we've learned um, from the folks who unfortunately were um, hit by IEDs, ah. uh, explosives, mm-hmm. and ended up uh, unfortunately requiring amputations, a lot of their rehabilitation techniques that they were um, participating in have helped that entire field of prosthetics and um, folks with uh, amputations uh, being able to do things that were, n- were never even you know, thought of 10, 15 years ago. Um, for example, uh, one of the initial uh, recovery things that now is done for amputees is when they're trying to build muscle back in that leg, we actually are doing what's called tourniquet therapy, where you are putting the tourniquet on um, their thigh, for example, to reduce a little bit of the blood flow to that quadriceps muscle to then make it work harder with essentially less uh, oxygen in the beginning. So you're, you're not cutting off the oxygen, but you're, you're giving that muscle, you're kind of fooling the muscle to think that, okay, I only have this amount of uh, fuel in the tank, so let me be as efficient and let me maximize that function as best as possible. So then when you take that tourniquet off and then they're going back to their, um, their strengthening programs, the, the muscle actually was able to gain more during that uh, tourniquet therapy. So that initially started in the military. Actually, in Texas, in the, on, a, in a base, uh, on a base in San Antonio was when they first started doing this. That actually was presented at an NFL physicians meeting a couple of years ago. So it actually now is also used in the NFL when some of the players are having surgery that requires a period of time where they're not allowed to put any weight on their leg because of some uh, area that needs to heal. We're actually doing tourniquet therapy for those folks um, to help those muscles maintain as much strength as possible. You're sure they're going to get a little weaker when you're not uh, walking on it, but trying to minimize some of that atrophy. And that uh, that made a big difference. We saw that firsthand. And that's a, that's just one example of an um, incre- incredible translational difference uh, that has come into society um, from working so closely with our military uh, veterans and folks uh, and all across all, all aspects of society. So just, you know, I, I didn't want to forget that, that, you know, we do have a, a very strong relationship with our military colleagues, and um, it, um, certainly we all, all help uh, work together on that regard for sure. I'm glad that you mentioned that. Um, now back to this idea yep. of stretching preparation, real, real world. What's the real benefit of that, you know, when you, sure. when you break it down into, from a layperson's perspective? Absolutely. And, and you know what? Stretching is the, is the analogy for what you need to do to gradually warm up your body again. So um, let's take the most common stretch that, that people do uh, when they're going to run. They're, you're going to stretch your hamstrings and you're going to stretch your quads. You're going to kind of reach down, touch your toes. You're going to then stand. You're going to grab your, uh, your foot and bring it up, uh, up to your butt to stretch your quads. So everybody pretty much stretches their quads and hamstrings. Uh, they should at least before they go on for a big run. So what's that actually doing? That's trying to make the muscle and tendons a little more limber, what, like a rubber band should be. You know, a rubber band, as you, as you know, when, when you pull a rubber band, uh, it's got some uh, resistance to it, but it should stretch a little bit, and then it kind of recoils back when you let go. So in a similar principle, we want our muscles and tendons to have some element of elasticity or an ability to stretch a little bit without tearing. But if you pull a rubber band too far, after a certain point, it's going to rip. It's going to rip in your hands. The same thing can happen to a muscle or a tendon if it's extremely tight or if it's scarred in. Um, those things can tear. So 
doing certain stretches basically helps keep some of those muscles and tendons a little more elastic. And, and listen, you, you can stretch, you can be extremely uh, diligent with stretching and just the simple um, fact of time, meaning every year, uh, every couple of years, our bodies, we just get tight. As you get older, things just get tighter uh, when it comes to muscles and joints. So that's why it's actually, as we stay active to older ages, it's even more important the older we get and the more, and the more active we maintain to incorporate stretching and warm-up routines into our, um, into our programs to try and minimize some of these soft tissue uh, strains and injuries that we can see when things are too tight. And then when you're going, if they're too tight and you're, and you're running or you're, you're, you're going up a hill a little bit on a run, that's when those kind of things can, can pull and then set you back because now these things get stretched and they get inflamed and painful. And um, so stretching is the analogy for simply starting to warm something up um, as you're going to use it more. And that translates into like what you were saying about the run. You know, your first time out, if you haven't ran in three, four months, you probably aren't gonna. You probably aren't gonna want to go out there and try and run five miles. You know, you want to <laughs> maybe do a half a mile the first day and see how you feel, and gradually build up. So it's um, it's basically that going back to that principle of gradually kind of easing back into that physical activity. Well, as you move to doing more, uh, you know, if you start relatively slow and kind of build on that should your warm-up should your stretching expand a little bit a little bit i mean not not necessarily um in the same ratio meaning you don't have to necessarily spend five times as much uh time stretching uh if now you're back up to running but um but yeah but i i would uh i certainly would uh potentially spend a little more time in the beginning uh warming up uh as you increase your activity level, and then the cool down uh, stretches can also also be helpful too. As you uh, as you kind of finish up your workout, uh, that's why you know, you often see people um, after a, a long um, faster pace run at the end. They don't just generally you don't just stop. You don't usually you don't just stop and sit down. You usually kind of gradually slow down to jog and then a walking pace and. And that's uh, that's a gradual reduction in your heart rate and um, and everything. So so yeah. So that those those kind of things. As you increase your activity levels, you want to also increase the the aspects that are going to be preventative. And that's why you see all the professional athletes spend so much time in the training room on t- days that obviously they're not um, in a game uh, scenario. But even before practices, they'll spend hours sometimes with the trainers over the course of the week doing different stretching, doing different massages. I mean, we have there's sports, uh, sports massage uh, therapists that are there to help loosen up some of the scar tissue and muscles from day-to-day use. Um, you know, there's uh, all kinds of different things we do now um, for maintenance of our muscles and um, ligaments and joints during the course of the week. So absolutely, the more active you are, the more you need to do to actually maintain your body. Very interesting discussion with our guests from IGEA Brain and Spine this uh, first hour of our program. We've got more to go as we continue. We'll try to work in some thoughts from some of the folks listening to us, too. If you want to um, comment on something that you have heard us um, touch upon thus far, you have a question. Um, the guests are very good in terms of uh, handling your calls. 877-337-6666 is our number here at The Fan. And we have to take a um, pause for our top-of-the-hour update. We have not mentioned, what's the contact information for IGEA Brain and Spine? 
Sure. So we have offices in Manhattan and in New Jersey, and uh, our website is www.igeaneuro.com. So I-G-E-A-N-E-U-R-O.com. Our contact information, our phone number is 866-721-8123. It is Sunday morning on WFAN. Thank you, Dave. After our 8 o'clock update, it is Rick Wolf, who's along with the Sports Edge program. Ed Randall's Talking Baseball follows our 9 o'clock update. It's Selection Sunday, of course, a big show from Westwood One tonight here on The Fan. Very busy day in sports and a fun time. And yes, here we are. It's 7.06, approximately. Yep, those clocks went ahead an hour overnight. We're in daylight saving time now. The good thing about that means it's dark a little bit more in the morning, but we start to have things lighter a little bit later at night. And you know that means we're starting to turn the corner towards spring, and that can only mean we're starting to move away from winter. And won't that be a nice thing, too? Whew. Especially after the past couple of weeks. And he those, wouldn't have known that, Bob, after this past Tuesday, Wednesday, or snowstorm. You know, after I think of the the poor people who are are and in some cases have been without power for what must seem like forever, and what that condition has been like. But just psychologically, we've got to get a break from this and move toward times where it's lighter out and people start to get outside. As we make that connection with our guests from IGEA Brain and Spine, Dr. Arun Rajaran, and uh, also Dr. Adam Lipson is in studio with us. Um, Arun is joining us by phone from uh, New Orleans on our program this morning. Let's talk a little bit about the spring sports and the types of injuries. We touched upon these a little earlier in our discussion I have a feeling we're going to hit a chord with some of the folks listening to us and talking about some of these things. And also, I guess, the sort of injuries that will come up and will happen as people start to get outside more. What are some of the typical ones? Who wants to take this? Sure. I mean, baseball, obviously, is getting into uh, full swing now in spring training. And and that's when we often see a lot of the uh, baseball-related initial injuries um, and thankfully, most of them are not traumatic, meaning most of those uh, are not a, um, a forceful, violent injury uh, that occurred at one moment. Um, but a lot of the things we're going to see now are going to be inflammation-type uh, scenarios related to uh, repetitive use that's now geared up because they're doing a lot more now since the since spring training has started. So in the shoulder, for example... Every day I see, I see folks with uh, rotator cuff uh, tendonitis, but that's going to pick up now, especially uh, as baseball uh, and softball and, uh, and a lot of the throwing sports are ramping up in the spring. Um, you're going to see more of that. 
Um, and then you're also going to see a lot of elbow tendonitis. So we see a ton of folks with tennis elbow. Um, and that's another perfect example of, you know, Adam, Adam had one of his patients come see me just last week who his uh, neck, his shoulder, and elbow were, were bothering him because that whole kinetic chain um, is uh, involved. It starts from your traps being tight in your uh, neck to then being, causing your shoulder to not rotate the way it needs to, and then your elbow um, starts being put in awkward positions when you're lifting and throwing, and that's why the elbow gets uh, gets impacted in that regard. So tennis elbow is something that we see extremely uh, frequently, and the majority of those folks are, are not tennis players. Obviously, now that it's getting warmer, you're gonna you are gonna see more tennis players um, uh, coming out. You're also gonna see more uh, people being able to play golf um, around the country as the Northeast warms up. Uh, so you're going to see more golf-related uh, issues. Uh, there's, there's something called golfer's elbow, similar to tennis elbow, but it's another tendon problem more so on the inner half of the elbow. So uh, I'm, I'm certainly going to be seeing more of the golf-related uh, issues coming up. Um, so most of the spring sports, as opposed to the fall sports, because fall we worry, um, you know, we worry about the, the bigger football injuries, most of the spring sport-related injuries that we see are more inflammation, repetitive use type um, issues. And then going down to the knee, you're going to obviously see your tendonitis and your patella tendon, which is right in the front of the knee. Um, as people are starting to run more outside and jog more outside, um, you're going to see those things. You're going to see some ankle tendonitis because if you're going on a long run and then you, have, you, um, you know, at the end you may not uh, uh, have the, have, you may have lost a tiny little grip or something and, and just uh, twisted your ankle just to touch that well, you didn't think it was a big deal, but then the next day that thing gets a little inflamed and those ankles, uh, those ankle tendons start to get inflamed. So spring sports are notorious for over-inflammation um, or uh, tendonitis from repetitive use of these joints that haven't been in full gear for the past few months of the wintertime. I would, I would just add, the, from a, as a spine surgeon, the, the injuries that I do see tend to be neck pain and, and upper thoracic pain for cyclists. Uh, a lot of them get some tightness mm. in the upper back and in the lower neck and then lumbar issues for the golfers. So low back pain for the golfers. And usually the, the solutions for that are for the golfers. Don't just go and play two rounds of golf, tra- train your body to, to do what you're asking it to do. So, so spend the time really focusing on strengthening the lum uh, the core muscles. So the abdominal muscles. Uh, so I, so I recommend usually to my patients, you know, cause a lot of times I'm asked to, Hey doctor, I'm doing great from your surgery. You did a discectomy, you did a fusion. I feel really well. I am passionate about doing this activity and, and frequently for my male patients that tends to be golf, uh, you know, how do I get back into that? And usually I say, spend a month, you know, three times a week, focus on core strengthening. So planks squats without weights, lunges, uh, some leg raises, those types of muscles, strengthening those muscles will give you some longevity and allow your body to do what you're asking it to do um, when you're engaging in sports. The, you know, because many of these activities, as you said, are weekend warrior. Most of us are not professional athletes and able to devote four or five hours plus a day to training our bodies to do what we ask them to do. And yet we want to engage in these activities because they, we love them. They're fun. They give us a release. So invest in your body a little bit coming into this. And likewise for the cyclists, usually I recommend some, some weight training and a lot of mobility exercises, really focusing on getting some 
thoracic uh, spine mobility back. So, so some stretching and mobility work is really relevant, not just getting on your bike and going is important. You know, I'm, I keep hearing this term stretching and thinking about this idea of preparation, putting some effort into it. It's not just jumping into um, the first thing that you think about uh, doing. Because, you know, you just made an excellent point, um, Adam, and Arun has made a number of excellent points thus far in our discussion. And that is this idea that most of us, are we're not trainers, you know, we're not professionals at, at this, and we don't have, most of us don't have personal trainers uh, working with us. You know, you have to use some common sense uh, in your approach to things, too, and very common for a lot of people, even people who are not participating in athletics, as you well know, is this idea of people talk about having some form of low back pain or mid back pain. I mean, it's so common. Are there ways, based on some of the things that you're saying, that people can kind of maybe strengthen some of their core, even if they're not participating? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so low back pain is one of the most, or mid back pain is one of the most common complaints that patients have. It's one of the most common pe reasons people miss work. Mm -hmm. It's one of the most common reasons people see physicians. And there's a massive, many billion dollar industry devoted to caring for people with low back pain. One of the issues we get into is why is that? I think one of the things that's happened is we spent a lot of time in chairs and sedentary work. work oh, hunched over a computer. Our body is meant to be active, lifting things, standing up a lot. And and certainly, you know, the adjustments to modern life take away, you know, naturally take away our core strength and cause us to be hunched over much more than our bodies are necessarily designed. So we have to take the we have to make adjustments in our body. And and you know, not everyone wants to do strength training, but the reality is is I think mobility and strength training are really important to maintaining uh, the health of the spine. And, and one of the biggest counterbalances, you know, to back pain is the, is, is the ability to have a strong abdominal core muscles that take those stresses off the disc, off the joints. And, and, and to that end, it, it doesn't need to be anything excessive. It doesn't need to be someone lifting a lot of weights, but generally looking at ways to activate those core muscles so there are a lot of people who say, well, I walk every day, I run every day. Fantastic. Those that that's healthy, but it's not addressing the cause of the problem, which really is by sitting at a desk all day, you're losing your core strength. And, and so we, I usually advise patients just to do ten minutes a day, maintaining their spine health, and that might be anything from just doing some uh, activities such as squats on your chair to uh, trying to, anything you can do to strengthen those abdominal muscles, crunches, planks where you're kind of in a push-up position or on your elbows uh, on the ground, those things will activate the core and provide better support just for daily function, let alone for activities. And it's- Yeah, and I'll add- Go ahead, Arun. Uh, I can say, Bob, I can, I can add to that for this. There's so many things, exactly like Adam said, because of the, a lot of our jobs nowadays are, are, involved, uh, are involved in an office space, office setting where you're not on your feet as much, um, you do get some, some subtle uh, 
atrophy of these muscles. Mm. So I see it a ton in folks with knee complaints because when your quad muscle isn't as strong as it should be, your knee ends up taking more pressure. So I, I always tell people the analogy that every one pound of body weight is three to five pounds of pressure going through your knee with every single step you take. And when you have quad muscles, when you have muscles that are, are functioning at their the way they're supposed to function, it actually unloads that pressure through the knee a little bit. It kind of keeps that knee open and, and helps protect it. But the muscle, when the muscles get weaker, that pressure actually increases. So the, one of the most common things I, I tell people to do are wall squats. Like almost, almost every one of my patients I see in the office with knee-related uh, issues, I demonstrate this to them in the office. We're basically doing squats in our office all day because of these demonstrations. But you, simple things like that where, where you don't necessarily have to run to the gym or need fancy equipment, you simply do uh, you know, against a wall or against a door uh, a squat from, and you don't even have to go all the way down. I tell people that's another common misconception that people think that they have to go all the way down to the floor, you know, the, the <laughs> ass to grass notion to get the full workout um, to get what you need. But really, if you can just do a squat from zero to 90, like a wall squat, kind of standing to a halfway sitting position, um, you're going to work those muscles. And, you know, you do three sets of 12. Uh, and then if, it, if you feel like it's getting easy, you go grab your. Uh, you know, grab a, a book or grab a gallon of milk or stuff from the fridge uh, at work and hold the weight while you're doing it so you can start holding some weight. So you can do those things. You can even just get those resistance bands from uh, any sporting goods or department store and tie those around the um, the leg of your work desk. And, and you can even do some kind of um, extensions and presses against those. So there's a lot of things you can do, just like Adam was saying, that are, are maintenance kind of treatments for yourself to maintain those uh, – muscles and tissues in the best scenario because that's what's going to protect those joints. Um, so that's, uh, the, that's a lot of the things that we're talking about these days. I want to get some thoughts in from some of the folks listening to us if they uh, have some questions as well on these points or actually put the question out there. Do you put some effort into preparing for heading out for your activities as weekend warriors? 877-337-6666 is our number here at The Fan. It's Daylight Saving Time, 723 this Sunday morning after our 8 o'clock update. It is Rick Wolf who's along with the Sports Edge program. Ed Randall is by after our 9 o'clock update on the fan. Yes, those clocks went ahead an hour. Um, we are in a discussion with our guests from IGEA Brain and Spine. Dr. Arun Rajaran is joining us from um, New Orleans where he's attending a conference. And in studio with us, Dr. Adam Lipson. Um, they are talking with us. We've touched upon a number of different uh, areas of discussion thus far. And I've mentioned the fact that um, if folks are on point with some of the things we're talking about, you can join us, 877-337-6666. That's our number here at The Fan. I know a lot of people probably are sleeping in though, uh, this morning, too, um, with the uh, time change. You know, it's always struck me as strange as somebody who worked many of these Sunday mornings. People actually want to take advantage of sleep on this morning. I would think they'd want to get up and take advantage of the fact that the time moved ahead an hour. 
I guess not. Okay. All right. Anyway. Well, well Bob, Bob, you, Bob, you can take that. You can take that to even a, a personal level here. On a, on, if I'm if I'm in New Orleans here on a Sunday morning, I don't have any of my kids, and none of my kids are at home in Jersey. I'd be able to sleep in a little bit, but instead, I'm up at four o'clock with you in this hotel room. So uh, it, 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 it hits it hits close to home uh, here right now. I'd be sleeping I'd be sleeping in if it weren't for the show. But that's our dedication. We love you guys. Well, thank thank you. You know, Adam was talking when we were on the break about the idea of, and you you held up your phone, okay, the the technology, okay, and you talk about the impact of that on what we're talking about, you know, things like spine health, the idea of people being so inactive, you know, and I, I, I say that and I sort of wince internally because I realize I'm sitting here and what am I doing most of the time? I'm looking at two different computer screens, okay? Because <laughs> um, I feel like, should I be up doing things up against the wall? Should I be on the floor doing crunches or, or just what? Here. Um, the technology, in a way, is a blessing, but at times can be a big hindrance for us in terms of the things we really need to do. Absolutely. So... I'll comment from a spine perspective. I'm sure Rune has a lot of observations and insights from from an extremity perspective. But the reality is, is modern life involves, for most people, sitting at a desk, looking at a computer, looking at their phone all day. (laughs) (laughs) And that is a massive change in the body function compared to just 100 years ago and for the last thousands of years, right? So... What's the impact in our body and what do we see as physicians when we see patients in our office saying, okay, it, it takes a lot for a patient to come in and see a neurosurgeon. There's there's a lot of obstacles to that. You know, it, last thing people want to do is go for spine surgery and yet we're seeing more and more patients, right? And, and, and why is that? And I, and, and I do think that the technologies have... Are, are relevant to this discussion. You know, most of our, most of human history, you spend your time, you know, farming, uh, being active, building, uh, you know, really using your body to its full potential. Obviously dealing with injuries, but for the most part, our people were much more conditioned a hundred years ago. And, and you know, it, it came out came about with industrialization. Uh, now it's coming out with really the data transformation of our economy that we're seeing. You know, to contribute in this economy, you have to be able to navigate media and information and computer technology, and that's that asks you to spend a lot of time sitting and hunched over. And there are things such as what we call a texting neck which is the idea that by bending forward, constantly looking down at a screen, you're placing a lot of stress because you're putting your your head forward, you're putting a lot of stress in those upper thoracic and lower cervical muscles. So what happens? Over time, you get disc herniations, and then you end up needing additional care directed at your neck. Uh, What also happens? By bending forward, you are losing your abdominal core strength because you're not sitting upright. You're not dealing with proper posture on two feet. So you get more lumbar issues and you develop what we call kyphosis where you're bent forward. Now, certainly I think people understand that. I think in many ways 
especially New Yorkers, we we're it's an active group of people. People spend a lot of time at the gym. They walk around a lot. Mm -hmm. Those are healthy things, and yet we do see generally more and more of these injuries affecting people's lives and function and giving them pain, and that's when the, what they're seeking attention from physicians on. Uh, you know, it, what's interesting, you know, we deal with those issues as surgeons all the time. I spend a lot of my time bent forward operating on patients. So what do I do? I spend a lot of time either adjusting my body or creating good surgery circumstances using a microscope, for example, so I can uh, not be bent over all day. Uh, you know, so the, they have an impact in every profession and every walk of life. But in understanding that that does impact your spine health, your body's health, interestingly, maybe even cardiovascular health, cardiovascular health. There was a study several years ago that showed that the, there is a correlation between the amount of time you spend in a chair and your actual heart health and that your risk of heart attacks goes up, I think, twofold, two and a half fold when, you, when you're spending most of your time sitting at a chair. Why? Because you're not using your legs and, and promoting good venous flow to your heart. So all these things have downstream effects and everything's related. So what I do, obviously, as a surgeon is I'm the option of last resort. Uh, you know, as, as Arun mentioned, we spend most of our time educating our patients on what's the best strategy to avoid the knife. If, if your symptoms are severe enough that, you know, it's affecting your quality of life, yes, surgery can be life-changing and help people tremendously. And we have better and better technologies to do things less invasively. So I don't think people should necessarily shy away from it if, if their symptoms are affecting their function and quality of life. But obviously the best goal is try to keep people from getting there. And that's one of the things, you know, this is a larger issue in many ways. Uh, there are lifestyle issues, there are workplace issues. And, you know, as a surgeon, I have a very, very uh, unique set of skills. That's really the end stream. But most of what we need to do as a healthcare system and a society is prevent you from getting to the point where you're needing surgery and high cost interventions. Mm. And what about yep, the standing? I was, I was thinking uh, Bob and Adam about the, a lot, that's why a lot of those standing desks have, uh, have become a little more prevalent mm -hmm. in uh, many office places for that exact reason. So you can at least spend uh, more time standing. So you're in a better posture while you're able to work and, you know, you're using more muscles, uh, why, uh, while you're trying to, you know, accomplish what you need to do at your desk. So it, however you can incorporate some actual uh, muscle activity while you're doing your work activity is just going to put you in a better position. You know, I th as I'm listening to both of you, I'm thinking about the situation that I've seen many times, and a lot of people who are listening to our discussion today probably have seen this, especially in Manhattan. End of the workday, typical weekday, and you watch these, I'm going to say, columns of people literally walking up avenues, okay? And it always amazes me the number of people who are walking home or at least a portion of the way home. And in some cases, they're walking miles. In a way, is that a good way of perhaps recovering from that day spent hunched over a computer looking at your cell phone? 
I, I would say yes. I definitely would say yes. In fact, the, the physical activity is, like Adam said, that's what our, our bodies were meant to do. In fact, the, it, it may, just made me think of this one study that someone presented on research yesterday. There's a study that compared a cohort of people who have run marathons throughout their life and then a similar age group of folks who have never run a marathon. Mm-hmm. And the study basically concluded that the folks that actually ran the marathons had no increased risk of arthritis in their knees. That's what they're trying to find out. They're like, does that daily pounding of running, um, obviously training enough to be able to do marathons, that, does that give you arthritis in the knee? Does that put you at a higher risk of arthritis in the knee? And long story short, the, these populations were followed, and the answer was no. So, so these folks have been training and, and doing marathons for all these years, and some of the, in some cases decades, and they they were in great shape. They were not in any more risk of arthritis just because they were doing those impact type activities for those extended periods of time. So that just that just kind of goes back to that idea that our bodies are they're the most well-oiled, uh, high-performance machines you could ever think of in so many ways from our, from head to toe. And, and it's meant to be, it's meant to be used in a, you know, in a productive fashion. So, so that's why I think, like you said, well, at the end of the day, when, when people are finally uh, out of their desk after sitting for the past eight hours, that walk is, is, is huge. I mean, that, that may be the only exercise uh, that many people are getting, which is, which is great. Um, so it's, uh, I, I think it's very beneficial that, uh, you're you're walking and you're improving your posture because uh, another thing I, I see is when when we're on our phones and we're on our keyboards you end up having your arms in front of you typing right or texting and that pulls your whole shoulder blade forward so then people are coming in it's like a, it's a new age of kind of rotator cuff issues where it's not even necessarily overuse overhead activities their whole shoulder blade is pulled forward because of their posture at work, that it's actually pinching their rotator cuff when they're trying to raise their arm and do things. So my first thing I notice uh, on these patients when I'm, I'm examining them is I see that whole shoulder blade kind of pulled forward. And then as I try and help their position of that and show them things to improve it, that usually will take care of the problem. But this is a whole new age of uh, um, causes of symptoms that we're seeing because of our, our current basically you know, workplace and lifestyle that most of us lead. I would just add that living in a modern world, there are more adjustments that need to be made. Yes, walking is beneficial. It's not enough. Uh, You know, the, you know, interestingly, I kept thinking about, yeah, you know, when when you're walking through the subway at rush hour, when you're walking home, it's great to see everyone walking. And that's, I think, something that's very beneficial to living in New York City. And yet... Half the time, the people are looking down at their screens. Well, that's a bit, that's a that's a that's a big big problem. Yes, and we can talk about all the consequences. <laughs> but from a spine and musculoskeletal health perspective, great, you're walking, but you're not walking with the posture you were designed for. You're meant to be centered with your head centered over your shoulders, over your pelvis, and anything that throws you forward or pitches you forward actually puts you at risk of further spine injury. So walking is great. Uh, what what I often recommend for patients who have neck injuries is to adjust their computer screen so they're looking straight, not write a single email on their phone. Okay, I think what? That, not right. write a single email on your phone. Avoid looking down at your phone. <laughs> for Wait a minute, it's twenty eighteen. I know. <laughs> but you know, personally, I I dictate most of my messages and I don't write emails on phones. I really? To that computer. And then other things are. Uh, for patients who have a lot of neck problems, 
actually I think sometimes they can't look at down their phone or a computer mm. is having them or even a keyboard having them use dictation software so there are adjustments because none of this is natural we're not meant to be hunched forward at a desk sitting in a chair all day our bodies aren't designed for that and so we have to make adjustments so what i would tell people is yes do your walk give it 10 minutes of mobility work give yourself 10 or 15 minutes a day of strength work you'll see so many rewards for that downstream mm. And when we talk about those repetitive um, stress injuries, uh, too, that's a, another area of discussion that a lot of people can identify with uh, also. There are many different areas where we can go in uh, discussions like this. I want to touch upon a couple other things as we continue. Today what we'll do is take a pause in our discussion with the um, two of you I know coming up after our 8 o'clock update, Rick Wolf has an interesting program to present on the Sports Edge. And Ed Randall's talking baseball is long after our 9 o'clock update this Sunday morning. Everybody, after our eight o'clock update, Rick Wolf is along with the Sports Edge program. Ed Randall's talking baseball is along after our nine o'clock update on the fan. I'm Bob Salter, and hopefully you are on point time-wise. We're moving towards seven forty-three. Those clocks went ahead an hour overnight for the change to daylight saving time. And in studio with us, Dr. Adam Lipson, and he's a neurosurgeon, board certified, board certified. Uh, Orthopedic surgeon Dr. Arun Rajaran is joining us from uh, New Orleans where he's attending a conference. They are both with IGEA Brain and Spine. Um, they've shared an awful lot with us thus far in our discussion. There's a lot of areas where we've touched upon um, discussion-wise, too. One of the things that um, we are talking about a little bit off the air, and Arun, I'm going to have you follow up on this now, is to talk a little bit about the idea of the workout technique and some, I guess, recommendations that you would have to try to avoid some of the types of injuries that can occur. Sure, sure, absolutely. And, you know, we touched a little bit uh, during the uh, 6 o'clock hour, uh, some of the listeners are probably just waking up now with their coffee to listen to this part, about, you know, most common, for example, knee and shoulder things. A lot of these things you could try to prevent to, you know, minimize them from even happening. So, when we talked about squats. Mm -hmm. So I tell folks that if you've ever had any knee issues or you're trying to um, get into working out again and trying to minimize, uh, you know, potential issues from arising, when you're doing squats, one of the best ways to start is by doing wall squats initially um, without any body weight to get your, excuse me, without any resistance, you're only using your body weight to kind of get your form down. And what I mean by that is, Zero to 90 degrees is something you'll hear very commonly in orthopedic uh, recommendations for exercises of different joints, specifically the knee and the shoulder. So that means zero degrees as your leg is totally out straight, 90 degrees as your knee is bent to a 90 degree angle. It's like if you're kind of like if you're sitting in, in the chair position. So when you're doing squats, 
you know, you start leaning against the wall or you can use a, you know, a Smith machine type of, uh, if you're at the gym, it's a Smith machine to help stabilize yourself. And then you're going to go down from the standing position, which is zero, down to just 90. And in general, that usually um, has your, and oh, I also recommend doing this in front of a mirror. So if you're getting into work, back into working out, it's really helpful to do exercises in front of the mirror because you can watch your form. And obviously, if you have a friend or, or a trainer or, or someone who can also watch you to give you some feedback on saying, hey, it looks like you're bending a little bit past 90, because the moment you go past 90 degrees, your meniscus and your cartilage takes a lot more load. And yes, you know, the, the, the biggest bodybuilders in the world and the, the proponents of uh, maximizing muscle growth, I will, will always say, you know, the further down you go, the more work you'll make your muscle do. And yes, that's true. There's no arguing that, that you will make your muscle work harder. But at what cost um, to the joint is always what I ask folks, especially if you're having some knee issues, for example. So when it comes to your, your knees, zero to 90 is what you want to stick with. And the same thing you, uh, you apply to when you're doing leg presses. So if you just did leg presses and squats for your quads when you first start getting back into working out, and even if you're on a maintenance routine, you'll maintain pretty good shape. You can actually maintain great shape of your quad muscles by doing variations of squats and leg presses. And so when you get on that leg press machine, I tell folks to put that chair or the sled further away from the actual um, flat wall that you're going to be pushing off of because the closer that seat is to that wall, the farther you're going to bend your knee. And then again, you're going to have that issue of putting too much pressure on the cartilage and the meniscus. So start with that seat a little further back. And then 90 degrees is the farthest you want to bend at the knee and then extend out when you do that leg press. So for the lift, when it comes to the quad strengthening, um, squats, wall squats, uh, and leg presses are, uh, are really, really great exercises to do. And if you stick to that zero to 90 rule, you'll, do, um, you'll be able to get a good workout without putting your meniscus and cartilage uh, in harm's way. Then the other common thing that is so, so, um, um, you know, common that I see is, is shoulder tendonitis related issues. And that zero to 90 um, rule applies to the shoulder as well. So rotator cuff strengthening, there are a couple muscles in our shoulder um, that make up the rotator cuff. And they're, they're small muscles. They're four muscles that make up the rotator cuff. And they're, relatively speaking, very small compared to the other muscles around your shoulder. And they basically do things like, you know, lift your arm in front of your body rotate the shoulder out and then rotate your shoulder in so when you're lifting um in front of your body for example everyone either uses dumbbells or a cable machine and they'll do forward raises when you do those forward raises it's that same principle of 90 degrees now what does 90 degrees in the shoulder mean in the shoulder mean so that means the arm is straight out in front of you parallel to the ground so the 90 degree angle is basically the angle that your arm is making relative to your torso the moment your arm goes overhead, your rotator cuff starts to get pinched right under your shoulder blade. And if you've never had shoulder pain in your life, then, it, you know, you probably, it doesn't matter. If you don't, you as an individual may not really care about that because it's never bothered you. Fine. But if you've ever had any shoulder issues or you're start, first starting to get back into working out again, if you stop at 90, you're minimizing the pinch on your rotator cuff. So when you take that cable machine or you take those dumbbells, bring the arm in front of your body to about 90 degrees and then stop and then go right back down. And basically, you know, I, I always say first start out with sets of maybe 10 to 12, three sets of 10 to 12. Um, and the exercises that bother the shoulders, 
for tendonitis-related issues are the ones that require you to do the work overhead. So if you're having some shoulder issues, pull-ups are going to be really tough for you. Seated lat pull-downs are going to be really tough for you. Bringing the dumbbells overhead, doing a military press, that's going to be tough. So those are the things that you want to actually avoid because, again, for that way, what I said before, anytime you're bringing that arm uh, higher than 90 degrees, you're pinching your rotator cuff under your shoulder blade, essentially like a, like a rope hitting the edge of a, edge of a dock. Like that. But when, a, when you see that, but now that we're getting warmer, we start seeing boats outside. When you see boats, uh, boats tied to a dock, when, that, when they kind of sways a little bit, that rope slams against the edge of that dock. That's exactly what happens to your rotator cuff. It slams against the edge of your shoulder blade once you go overhead, and all it takes is starting up a little inflammation, and that becomes a repetitive cycle that um, sometimes gets stuck in there. So that 0 to 90 rule is really important to uh, think about in the, in the shoulder. Um, and the last little thing I'll throw in about elbow workouts, because everyone does a lot of biceps and triceps work as well, especially you got to get in shape to get down to the Jersey Shore. Your arms have to look good. So using um, the rope cable machine, um, excuse me, using the ropes or a cable machine that allows some flexibility is a little better for your elbows than using the bars where you're at a fixed angle or the triangles where your arms are in fixed angles. So I want your elbows to basically be able to move um, freely like they can when you use the ropes um, for your triceps work. So that's another thing to think about if you've had elbow issues. Try to move your workouts to those uh, rope-style uh, pull-downs or cable pull-downs instead of the fixed bar. Uh, it's just a better position for your elbow. The rotator cuff itself, that that injury when there's surgery with that, how involved does that get? And how what's what kind of a size area is that, that you're really working in? Sure. So that is also done, and most of our stuff in sports medicine nowadays is done um, in a minimally invasive fashion uh, called arthroscopy. There are arthroscopies where you put the camera into the into the joint, and then you're you're making what we call portals, but basically little tiny little like poke holes at the skin to put the camera and the instruments through. So rotator cuff repairs. You know, when I do that, I do it through those uh, through the camera and through those um, small small portals. So the surgery in and of itself is not not that um, big of a deal from you know from my my standpoint for me to for me to perform it's more of the recovery issue that the folks have to deal with Mm -hmm. is staring at the calendar because unfortunately as much as we have you know advances in technology biology still needs time to heal so you'll hear me say the three month mark a lot when it comes to soft tissue healing when we're talking about different types of injuries but when i do a rotator cuff repair that takes three months to heal. So when I'm in there, I'll put, I'll put sutures or stitches through the rotator cuff, and then I'll anchor it back down to bone through um, anchors that kind of absorb over time and, and turn into bone. So, you know, when you leave the operating room, that rotator cuff is repaired back down to the bone, but it's got to heal. So, and that healing means that the tendon is incorporated back into its connection with the bone, and that takes three months. No matter how, how you slice it, that's just a calendar thing in biology. So the first six weeks, folks are kind of limited. You know, you're in a sling uh, for a good chunk of that. You can't really lift the, you can't lift the arm to, to do things. You got to be really careful, especially the first six weeks after a rotator cuff repair. Um, and then the second six weeks, you're starting to um, move it a little more with assistance, meaning you're using your other arm to move the, the surgery arm. The physical therapists are going to move it. But it's not until after that three-month mark 
Are you going to safely be able to start actually using the arm for strengthening and resistance style things because that's when it heals. So that's the biggest thing that um, that's the hardest part of our rotator cuff uh, mm-hmm. recovery is just the time thing. You really have to protect it because if you don't protect it and it retears, you're back where you started. And that's the thing. So I always tell folks with the rotator cuff uh, surgery, it's, you know, you go, it's still a same day procedure, minimally invasive through a camera. You know, you go, you'll your surgery in the morning, you'll be home for lunchtime. Not a big deal from that standpoint, but it's a, depending on what you do for work and especially uh, folks, you know, uh, a lot of folks in law enforcement that I take care of, you know, for, for one of my officers to be able to go back full duty to safely do his job, that it's going to take some time. So, so that's why whenever I'm talking about recovery with uh, folks after rotator cuff surgery, it's really about the, the calendar and saying, okay, how many months do you have to protect this uh, to let it heal before you can safely go back to doing what you need to do? One thing that we have never touched upon in our discussions thus far, and we talked about this off air, I almost hesitate to do that. It did this at this point in our discussion, but I've been thinking about it the whole time that we've been talking. Tommy John surgery. What exactly is that? Sure. So, so Tommy John surgery is actually named after uh, the pitcher Tommy John because he had this ulnar collateral ligament injury that basically made that arm and elbow unstable that they basically built him a new one. So what does that mean? So your ulnar collateral ligament is on the inside of your elbow. So if you're looking at your right arm and you look at the inner half of your, your right elbow, um, that's, that's, it's kind of like the MCL of the knee, the meocleral ligament of the knee. We have something called an ulnar collateral ligament of the elbow and it's the strongest ligament in our elbow. It basically prevents the elbow from kind of basically buckling out of place. And what happens is when you're a pitcher and it's, this is, it does happen in other sports all the time, um, but it affects the pitchers the most in regards to do they need surgery? Because when you're a pitcher and your arm is in that cocked back position behind you, as your arm's about to come forward to generate the velocity on the ball, your elbow sees so much torque and so much strain at that moment that it stretches that ulnar collateral ligament. And a lot of these pitchers have, you know, pitched hundreds on thousands of pitches over the course of their uh, careers that that ligament, unfortunately, gets stretched and stretched and stretched. And and in cases, it tears. So the problem is, if you're a pitcher and you don't have that ligament, your elbow, when you go back to throw that ball and your arm is behind you, that elbow is going to basically kind of buckle or subluxate. It's going to basically go out of place and that's going to hurt. So if you don't have a, an intact ligament there, you're not going to be able to be as effective um, pitching. And and, it, and as far as the surgery goes, you'll see the same injury in every other sport. But really the only folks that end up needing or considering the need for surgery are pitchers. In fact, even other position players in, in baseball, there's there's outfielders running around with this uh, ulnar collateral ligament injury that never had surgery. Um, there's infielders that same thing that never had surgery. So the only population that we worry the most about when you have this injury is the pitcher because you need that restraint against that torque that you generate in the elbow. And the way these things tear, unfortunately, um, similarly to an ACL, when an ACL tears in your knee, you can't just put stitches in it and repair it. Once in a while in the elbow, when the ulnar collateral ligament is injured, there's, there are certain scenarios where you can try to repair it. But generally speaking, Tommy John surgery 
means you actually have to reconstruct or give that person a new ligament. And generally, we usually take it from, from the same person. So you, you have some extra tendons um, down your forearm by the wrist. Um, that uh, you don't necessarily use or, or, or need. They're, they're literally extra, te- there's an extra tendon that we use. Um, and then you can also harvest it from other parts of the body. And then basically you create the tendon um, in the fashion that you then reconnect it, um, connecting that uh, region around your elbow to provide that stability. So it's basically going to be a, a nice, strong rope or cable-like tendon now that's going to protect that elbow and prevent it from buckling. Um, that once it heals and once you do the rehab uh, to get it back, you're, you're able to um, get that stability. But even that's a long road. That's mo- most people, if, you, if, if you're talking Tommy John, you're looking at a year before you're back to you know, full, full go pitching again to the highest level that Arun, you want to. Real quick, I thought some of yep. the controversy also was you see a lot of high school pitchers who have yep. major league prospects and you're seeing them go quite early for Tommy John. Is that, you know, is that something to kind of improve function and anticipation of a professional career? What, what, what are your thoughts on this? Because because I know that sometimes some of the athletes go very almost too early for the Tommy yeah, John no, no, surgery. Yeah, no, absolutely. Great question, Adam. You know, we'll see. And some of those athletes that are now have been offered scholarships to play in uh, D1 schools, similar, similar issues. So it's, it's not – it's not necessarily something that you're doing to improve the performance. It's something that if it's torn and if you're starting to have, if you have symptoms and if it's torn, it's probably unlikely that you're going to be able to have a successful um, pitching career at the D1 college level or the professional level if you don't have a ulnar collateral ligament as a pitcher. So that's why you'll see um, – most of these surgeries happening in these pitchers, and now we're seeing, like you said, the high school pitchers as they're becoming, you know, prospects for colleges, and uh, in some cases, obviously, getting closer to the pros. Um, because if they don't, if they don't have the surgery, they're going to continue to have instability in that elbow, and they're not going to be able to generate the types of pitches that they need to to succeed at that level. Hmm. Very interesting discussion, Dr. Arun Rajaran. Dr. Adam Lipson, would you repeat the contact information for IGEA Brain and Spine? Absolutely. So offices in New Jersey and New York City, and our phone number is 866-721-8123. And the website? www.igeaneuro.com. Rick Wolf and the Sports Edge coming up. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, You call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.